Guys, welcome into another episode of the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Ramsey Nijem, head of sports performance for University of Kansas's men's basketball team, the number one team in the nation before, well, coronavirus happened. Before Ram was with the Kansas Jayhawks, he was the head of sports performance for the NBA's Sacramento Kings. While living in Sacramento, I met Ram at his event, the Bay Area Sports Performance Symposium. It's one of the best collections of strength coaches, fitness enthusiasts, and just personal trainers all around. And it's an incredible symposium if you're looking to learn from some of the world's best in the areas of sports performance, longevity, and nutrition. So sit down, enjoy the conversation today with Dr. Ram Nijem. It's going to be a good one. I promise promise you'll enjoy it and learn a lot. Dr. Najim, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, as good as I can be, you know, crazy times, but I think that I'm keeping my head above water and, and I've seen that you're doing the same, which is good. So for those who are listening, who aren't familiar with you and they should be, because I've posted a bunch of your stuff and I've talked about you before on the podcast, even. Um, you are currently the director of sports performance for the Kansas Jayhawks men's basketball team, correct? Correct. Yes, sir. I just finished my first season with that. And you guys finished number one in the nation before COVID-19 knocked out the tourney. That's right. Unanimous number one team. You guys were, are you pretty confident you guys were going to run the table? You know, it's March is called March Madness for a reason because of you know, the the possibilities of 64 teams playing each other and one game eliminations are always hard. And um, so like, yes, I'm confident. Um, but I think that the excitement of March is, is upset and stuff like that. So I acknowledge that that's a possibility, but we were, uh, man, we were high at the right time. I think we finished 17 games in a row on a win streak. So um, yeah, no, I, it, it would have took a lot. It would have took a team playing better than they've ever played to beat us and us probably playing at, you know, subpar levels. But when we were on our A game, I had a, I had confidence that we could beat any team in the country. Yeah. And before you took the job at Kansas, you were with the Kings. And I remember reading an article that you were actually the youngest strength coach in the history of the NBA. And that's, that's quite an accomplishment, particularly given that it's such a congested field and it's really hard to make a name for yourself. And I think that's something that you've done the right way. Could you kind of describe that journey from whenever strength and conditioning kind of got on your radar, however old you were, whatever you were doing, to taking it all the way to the NBA and then now to the highest level of the NCAA? Yeah, um, I'll try to give the short version of that, but it's, um, you know, when I, when I entered my undergraduate, I entered actually as a, a accounting major, and uh, I had no idea strength and conditioning coach was a job. I didn't have a strength coach in high school, um, and this was, you know, pre-social media and all that, so even strength coaches weren't really that seen. You know, now you get, like, on ESPN, the random blurb of a strength coach running along the sideline and all of that, like, it didn't really happen um, even 10 years ago. And now with social media, you see that more. So uh, it was after my first year uh, at my undergrad, UC Santa Barbara, I realized uh, accounting wasn't for me. I thought about transferring to play basketball. I've always been a basketball guy. I loved basketball growing up, played, you know, through high school. Uh, and I still wanted to play through college. I thought about transferring. And right at that decision point, it was actually my older brother who was like, yo, why don't you just become a personal trainer? You know, you work out all the time. You like it. People always ask you for advice, like, do that. And I'm like, well, 
I don't know what that looks like. And he's like, man, you just take a test. And I've always been good at tests. So um, that was like the inception of it. Really, I'm like, wow, if I could create a career around helping basketball players, then maybe we, maybe we chase that dream. Um, and, I mean, the rest is history, as they say. You know, I've met some really good people along the way that kind of looked out for me, went on to get my master's. Um, and then when I was 20, 23, uh, I became the assistant strength coach for the Sacramento Kings. And then at 25, I became the head strength coach. And something you just mentioned was like how congested the field is. And so, you know, when I was 25, the, the head job opened up, the Sacramento Kings. As I mentioned, I was the assistant there for two years already. And so as this, as this job opens up, and my boss who hired me, um, who was serving as the head strength coach, left to now where he works with Chicago Bulls. Um, you know, I'm looking at this vacancy like, do I think I deserve it? Yes. Do I think I can do it? Yes. But do I think they're going to give it to me? I don't know about that. I'm 50-50 because I was 25 years old at the time. Um, so part of me was like, no, nah, go get that. You deserve that. Um, but the other part was like, well, you're also 25. You've only been here two years and you can literally post this job right now and get thousands of applicants who would love to take it. Um, fortunately, I did enough during my two years to impress the right people and they felt confident in my ability to, to run the show. And um, so, yeah, man, at 25, they gave me the head job and I spent three years doing that. And that was an amazing, amazing just time in my life. I mean, it was the dream job, quote unquote, period. Um, you know, I bought my first house in Sacramento. I went through like the contract negotiation process and all of that that goes into like getting that type of job. Um, and after three years, I actually signed an extension. So I signed a fourth year extension. And then out of nowhere, I got a random phone call from Hall of Fame coach Bill Self and Kansas Jayhawks. Um, and at the time I wasn't looking to get out. I wasn't, I never looked at the job market, even when I was in Sacramento, like when you got your dream job, you don't really look at the job market. You just mm -hmm. your head down and keep working. And I got a random phone call and, you know, one thing led to another. I found myself interviewing. I found myself on campus. I found myself taking a big picture, look at my life, where I wanted it to go and realized that at the, that, that this opportunity was the right move at the right time for me. So, um, left last year in September. Uh, not even a year to the day and uh, spent the year with Kansas Jayhawks. And like you said, man, it was a great year, finished, finished number one overall. And, um, and now that's kind of where all my attention and focus has been. And now you, you've kind of had that sport background as an athlete, and that's kind of what got you into wanting to work in sports performance. But you also have quite a bit of academic accomplishment in uh, the collegiate space. You have a doctorate degree. And that's not something that's very easy to accomplish, particularly doing what you were doing at the time as a strength coach. I believe when I went to the first BASP, I don't even know if you had accomplished that yet. Maybe you had, but I believe you. it was still something that was at least in the works or you were wrapping up. So that was something that you worked on kind of simultaneously. Can you talk about how that academic path helped you with what you've accomplished in the strength and conditioning space? Yeah, for sure. Um and so, yeah, I finished the degree and uh, I think I walked in August 2018 and the first Bayer Sport Performance Symposium that you you attended was, I think, April 2018. So a few months before. Um, so I was probably wrapping it up at the time. So, yeah, I hadn't even finished it then. Um, and just that process was it was fun. I, when I started with Sacramento Kings, I had already started the degree. And so um, when I got the call, you know, of, of a verbal offer for the assistant role, I basically said, look, I'm, I'm thrilled to do it. I'm flattered to be considered. It's, uh, 
no hesitation, absolute yes for me. The only thing that I requested was, can I finish school? So I didn't care about the salary. I didn't care about the work hours. I didn't care about nothing. The only thing I cared about was, do I have the freedom to finish school? And the reason I had to ask was because multiple times throughout the season, I would actually have to leave the team to go to campus. Um, and so once they said, yeah, like we support that, uh, you know, that pursuit and we understand that that's going to make you ultimately better for, for us and our players. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's in the NBA, you, you get busy, but you also have a lot of downtime, right? Like you spend so much time in hotels and buses and airplanes but there's actually a fair amount of time that you can, some people use it um, reading or listening to audible books. Some people might watch TV shows. Uh, and for me, it was just like, yo, just anytime you have extra time, just put it towards this degree and, and try to knock this thing out. And, uh, but yeah, it was, it was certainly a fun journey. And it was something that, you know, I tell people like the undergraduate basically teaches you how to remember things and then spit them back out. A master's degree, um, at some level begins to introduce like critical thinking and application. And then a doctor teaches you how to just solve problems. Um, so I always tell people like, if you have a doc, like someone has a doctor degree, it doesn't mean they're like smarter than people or anything like that. It ultimately just means that they probably have the skills to go find answers. So like, you know, I don't know a lot about politics, for example, but I guess if I spend a whole bunch of time trying to figure it out, you kind of have that skill set to either, you know, appraise research or, or search and appraise research, apply research, critical thinking, all those things. Um, and all those skill sets really was just an extension of what I learned at my master's degree at Cal State Fullerton. And I had such a good staff there. Like, I never thought, I didn't even think I would get a master's degree. Um, I went into my undergrad thinking like, yo, in four years, I'm out this piece. I'm not even down for school like that. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. You find yourself at a, at a graduate level. And the staff was so amazing and poured into their students so much that I was like, yo, this is actually fun. Like, and, and the biggest difference too is, you know, in your undergrad, you have to learn about things you don't care about. Like if you don't like history, you still have to take history classes. Um, grad school is not like that. You just take classes that you care about. So like, it just became this like flame that wouldn't go away. I was super passionate and wanted to learn more and want to learn more. And then you get to a point where it's like, okay, what are the limitations of my knowledge? How do I learn more about those and fill those gaps? And so. Um, yeah, that journey was was just one that kind of naturally evolved. It wasn't like a a goal, you know, originally. It just kind of naturally kept going. At some point, it was like, yo, you're 22 with a master's degree. You might as well knock this thing out and be 26 or 27 and be all the way done with school. So, um, yeah, man, it, it's something that I look back now and I'm like, yo, that was kind of a lot of work. Uh, but during it, you just have your head down and you just put in work in. So you don't really notice yeah, no, I think that's actually kind of unique because to look back on it, I I've done this even with my undergrad. I only have a bachelor's degree, but I was doing a lot of things at the time. And I think to myself, like, man, I had a lot on my plate that I was kind of mm -hmm. just, again, my head was down, you know, nose to the grindstone type of situation. So you kind of forget how busy you were. But those types of things, the ability to do that work is pretty rare. Was that something that was kind of instilled in you from an early age? Did you get that from mom or dad? Where did that come from? Because even though it's something you love, there's a lot of people who love strength and conditioning. There's a lot of people who are really interested in helping people, but they're not able to, you know, run a strength and conditioning program in the highest level of sport while pursuing an academic goal simultaneously. Yeah. Um... You know, it's funny, I, 
looking back now, of course, like the 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 quick answer is like my mom certainly instilled everything um, in me from a work ethic and from a character side. Like um, every part of who I am as a man comes from her. Like she raised us. She raised me. And I have two older two brothers. I actually have a twin brother and older brother. So my mom raised us on her own. And um, so like the, the quick answer is like my mom for sure. Um, but then I think like the more um, perhaps relatable answer to everyone is like, I always have looked at, I'm, I'm, I'm a competitor at heart. Like I love to compete. Um, and school just became my playing field. Like I had to come off the basketball court and hang the shoes up because I wasn't good enough to get paid to do that. So it's like, well, I still have this competitive spirit. Where do you put it? And um, school just became for me like that, you know, strap the sneakers on and let's get to work. And so I looked at every class like competition, like, um, you know, I got I would walk into grad school. I would walk into tests. Like I remember I walked into our biostats test and I told the professor and, you know, I had, you have relationships with all these professors. And I walked in like, y'all about to kill this test. Y'all not ready for me. I was just. I'm just like the shit talking strength coach who just puts that energy into school, who put that energy into school. You know, I don't do it anymore, but um, that was, I think, just kind of the the framework or the frame of mind for me. It was like, yo, this is this is competition. Like somebody's gonna challenge you, and the challenge happens to be a test, or the challenge happens to be a paper, um, or a dissertation, or whatever it is. Like there's a challenge in front of you, and you got two options. You could either you know, walk away from it or you can stare it dead in the face and say, let's get to work. Um, and so for me, school just became like my sport, I guess. Uh, and I was always pretty good at school. Like, I don't want to like downplay that because I do understand that the formal academic setting isn't for everybody and I don't push it on it. You know, anybody like some people want to go to school. Some people don't. So there's a man, it's 2020. You can learn just as much on YouTube for the most part as you can on in classes. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely like appreciate that side of it. But for me, I was always just good at school in the, in the formal settings, even through high school. Um, and so it just became like, yo, just keep applying pressure, like just keep going. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my mom, but also I think just that inner athlete in me. Now I don't compete on the basketball courts. So I'll compete in school. But now that that's done right now, it's like, what else can I compete in? What are the challenges that I need to create for myself and try to solve? And, uh, and some of that stuff comes to mind. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value there for people who are in the space, whether it's as a fitness enthusiast, hobbyist, coach, maybe they're a strength coach at a high school, they can borrow from what's made you successful and try to find that within themselves, wherever that may be. Now, we'll kind of pivot over towards a little bit more of what it is you actually do day to day with your athletes. And, you know, I've been a lifelong fan of sports in the NBA in particular, and I've noticed in the last, I would say, five to six years there's been a huge peak across all professional sports, but really in the NBA on looking at the wear and tear that comes onto these guys' bodies from an 82-game season, a 17-week season, whatever that may be, whatever the sport. We're really evolving rapidly looking at the stressors that are being placed on these guys' bodies so when we can prolong their career and manage injuries. Uh, you've kind of been in the space that whole time. What have you noticed, like, what are the biggest changes from when you got into it as an assistant strength coach many years ago to now running whole programs? What are you looking for and what have you seen change in how we really look to keep athletes on the court, on the field, healthy and injury free? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a space that's probably looked at almost too much at times, especially at the professional levels. Um, 
and understandably so. I mean, some of these guys are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars per game. Like when you break down their contract and divide it by the 82 games and, and obviously playoffs for, for certain players, but um, you know, there's, there's a huge dollar amount that is at play with their health and their ability to compete. Um, so I certainly get why there's been a huge emphasis on it, but man, at some point it's almost like, yo, we're here to play the game. Like we got to play the sport. That's what you're ultimately paid to play the sport. Um, and so, you know, the, the changes that have occurred, even from when I started as an assistant, you know, in around 2013, 2014, um, some of the like uh, monitoring systems started to introduce themselves in the NBA. Um, so like we were one of the first teams with the catapult system, which is like a um, local positioning system, but you have like these GPS systems um, or ultimately just hardware that you put on the body to track external workload. So that just might be, you know, total distance ran um, or number of accelerations and decelerations or change of direction or some speed metrics if you have those. So that was like, well, that's one side of it. And then obviously there's the internal side. Um, but what I always tell people is like, yo, load monitoring is certainly not new. People have been wearing heart rate monitors for years. Mm-hmm. Um, the explosion in the research came in around 20, like I said, 2014, 2015, because technology had just progressed to a point where it just became very uh, or relatively cheap to buy some of these systems and put them on your players. So then naturally an explosion in research occurs. Uh, Stress management becomes a thing. Certain teams start to rest healthy players. And now you're like, what the heck is going on? That becomes a thing. Um, And then you fast forward to like Kawhi Leonard winning a championship with the Toronto Raptors. And like certain people have credited that to like the Raptors conservative approach and making sure he was healthy for the playoffs and not worried about losing games the regular seasons. Like there's been this natural progression. Um, but some of it I think just has to do with technology being able to progress and um, you know I think in general it, there's a good place for it right like mm-hmm. what I tell people too is it's it's literally no different than strength and conditioning right like when you look at a periodization model when you look at writing a program for an individual one of the principles of SNC is progressive overload progressive overload is workload monitoring it is workload management right it's understanding what is the load, whether that's volume load, whether that's a velocity characteristic, what is the load or the demand that this individual can handle right now? And then how do we progressively build that over time without, you know, incurring an injury? Um, and that's all it really is. I just think that you start to put some of these modern technologies, some of this research around it, some of these really modern framing. So you call it, into, call it a acute chronic workload ratio. Um, which is literally no different than 1980s um, fatigue and readiness, like conceptions, right. Or concepts. So I think where, where you run into some issues, though, is you have like traditional coaches, mm-hmm. you have like modern sports scientists. Mm-hmm. And then we, we've positioned these two kind of industries as if they're competing, but they're really not like every coach wants their star players to be healthy because they win more games. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was actually frustrating at times in the NBA because it's almost like, yo, we're about to workload monitor them out of competition levels. Uh, and then you fast forward to where I am now in college setting. And it's like, yo, I, I learned a lot this past year because we practice really hard, but guys get in really good shape and they become really robust and they become able to compete at a high level um, through periods of workload that in the NBA, we wouldn't even allow players to get to at times. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, there's been a shift almost too far to the safety side at, at times because it's very much possible to under-prepare an athlete, right? Uh, so, yeah, man, it, it's been cool to watch, but it's also been frustrating at times. Hey, guys, just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media. Simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah. One of the things I've seen a lot in the hobbyist space or even the gen pop fitness space is most people tend to not really have a quality understanding of what elements they need to be aware of to recover properly from their training. People want to train hard. They want to go to the gym five, six days a week. They want to do CrossFit. They want to do all this different stuff that really puts a demand on for most people's body that might be too much. What are some of the kind of just bread and butter things? Because you made a good point. There's an answer somewhere in the middle here, right? We have modern day coaching. We have modern day sports science. And we can really take good care of our bodies meeting somewhere in the middle. What are some easy just take home things gen pop people can do in the middle to improve their recovery, perhaps even monitor their fatigue or performance that you would recommend? Yeah, for sure. Um, on the recovery side, the easy one is sleep more. Like, if you want to recover from something, sleep is probably the best thing you can do for yourself. Um, not probably, it is the best. Second, that becomes nutrition. That's a can of worms that we probably don't even have enough time to get into. But I think ultimately, it's just looking at um, your body weight every day is going to be a good indication of the number of calories that you've been able to consume at some level, um, the type of calories that you're able to consume. And then hydration status. Um, so whatever your goal is from a body composition side, you have to you have to put that within the context of like recovery. Um, so, for example, if you have higher training volumes, if you want to go out and do CrossFit every day this week. Hey, I'm not going to be the guy that tells you not to, but I will be the guy that says if you're going to do that, then you probably want to make sure you're getting some extra hours of sleep. If not creating extra hours through full sleep at night, then at least add some naps. Um, this is probably not the week that you want your body weight to go down because you're going to need those extra calories to recover or to refuel recovery. Um, and then, and then check your weight every day because large changes in body weight are probably indicative of your hydration status. So like sleep more, check your weight, make sure you're not losing weight this week. And now within the context of body composition, if you're doing five to six days across it, cause you want to lose weight, that's fine. But week one or week two is not the time to do that because if you spike training volumes, you spike training intensities, and you drop calories to create the caloric deficit you're looking for, but now you've got a nice recipe for getting hurt. So mm -hmm. slow and steady wins the race and, and track those things over time. Uh, so that was the recovery. I think the other one you asked was uh, monitoring fatigue. Yeah. If there's any technology that you think Gen Pop may have access to, they don't, you know, I know that you have access to the best systems in the world, but you're also quite privy to some of the things that are probably out there on the market for the average Joe who might just say, Hey, I want to maybe get some idea of what my stress level is, what kind of impact I'm putting on my body. Is there anything you'd recommend, even if it's not in the tech space for people to do that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a heart rate monitor is still relatively cheap. I think that there's value in, in understanding your heart rate. Um, 
during uh, even like a standardized run. So if you have like a warm up that you do every day, just knowing what your heart rate is during that basic warm up every day is going to be helpful because mm-hmm. um, if that thing seems to be spiking a lot, that might be indicative of your nervous system levels. Um, other things that are free, like, you know, you could wake up every day and, and give yourself a three question survey and something as simple as like, you know, how sore am I today? Mood wise, you know, how am I feeling today? And uh, do I want to do I want to train today? I think having a question there like that becomes important because now it's just like a yes or a no. And that yes or no becomes pretty um, suggestive of where you're at from a recovery side. Like if you for three days in a row have the answer of no, I don't want to train. No, I don't want to work out. Um, that's probably telling you, like, for some reason, you're not motivated. And that might go back to, again, sleep and nutrition and some of that. Or it might come down to um, the monotony of your training. Maybe you need to change that. And we know that monotony of training um, can lead to actually some injury risk. So um, that's a free one for me. Um, I think ultimately just being aware of of your energy levels and your mood because overtraining symptoms are going to sneak in and you're going to become more aggravated. Um, you might have some sleep apnea. Um, so little things like that are things that I think we could just do a daily check every day, just check in with yourself. Like it could be multiple times a day. It could be when you wake up, it could be, you know, around four or 5 PM, like, yo, how aggravated am I today? I just went to work. I just had my day. My typical day has hit me. Am I more or less aggravated? Am I more or less fatigued? Um, am I happy? Am I not happy? Like all those things are going to give you a very good indication of where you're at from a recovery or readiness standpoint. No, I love that. I think a lot of people are probably listening like, oh my gosh, I'm totally overdoing it because I'm always irritable. And they might not have made this connection that those fatigue symptoms that we incur from training, we can actually see them in other avenues, like our mood, like our desire to train. It's not just purely physiological. There's a lot of psychological stuff that gets impacted by that physical stress. So I think that's a super good share. Another thing that's a cheap tool that I've used, and it's actually a tip that I borrowed from Joe DeFranco, who trains a lot of football guys out on the East Coast, is actually a grip strength measuring device. And it's Mm -hmm. really simple. You just squeeze it as hard as you can, and it's going to give you a rating like of how strong your grip is. And if you're going in each day and you're hitting around the same marks, you're probably okay to train. But if you jump in there one day and you grip it and you're down 10 to 12 points, you're like, okay, there's clearly some fatigue going on here. I don't have the output. So just little tiny data-driven things, or like you said, I think subjective readiness tests are super, super awesome. Even Mm -hmm. for gen pop people who just want to make sure they're not overdoing it and actually get the benefits from their training. Absolutely. And so something that I talked a lot about with Joe Grinstein, who came on last week, is that we should be borrowing a lot of elements from different sports, different philosophies to really kind of create a fundamental platform for physical growth, whether that's as a bodybuilder, a powerlifter, an Olympic lifter, a basketball player. There's a lot we can borrow. And one of the space that I just don't think it's enough clout is sports performance, particularly for gen pop. Are there any things that you think of that your average gym goer could borrow from the sports performance space, maybe outside of recovery, because we hit on that, maybe some in the gym stuff that you think could really help them with long term fitness, health, injury prevention, pain management, all that stuff? Yeah, for sure. Um, Two things that come to mind really when it as far as like the crossover between gym pop and maybe sport performance or the highest levels of sport performance. you know, one that comes to mind for sure is like the value that I that I previously mentioned here is 
there's a huge value in keeping people healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I think the average gym goer doesn't appreciate is the value of keeping yourself healthy. Like you go in, you want to jump right into it. You want to, you haven't worked out in three months and today's a day where you think it's time to go for a one RM or, or spike volume, like mm-hmm. steady wins the race. Because ultimately when it comes to gym pop fitness, you, sure, some people want to lose 10 pounds for um, the Cabo trip that's around the corner. And and we always have these just cyclical yo-yo dieting things that come to mind. So, yo, you lose 10 pounds and you gain it back. So you lose 10 in January, February because you got the new year around the corner or the new year just hit. You're super motivated and then you become demotivated because March hits and whatever. And then summer's around the corner. So it's like, well, let's use 10 more pounds. And then that comes back up and then it's like wedding season and then you lose 10 more, but then that comes back up and then the holidays hit and now you gain 10 extra pounds. And when you look, look at your year, you had the goal of losing 30 pounds, but you've actually gained three. And it's not because you've just slowly gained three. It's because you lost 10, you gained eight, you lost 12, you gained 20. Like, so your body weight becomes this natural yo-yo and that's actually super challenging long-term metabolically speaking. So when I always think of Gen Pop, I'm always just like, yo, think huge picture. Like, where do you want your body to be physically in 10 years? Mm-hmm. Now just start to create the lifestyle that leads to that rather than going into the gym today and thinking like, I'm going to lose 20. Like it's not going to happen. Um, and I say all that to say, when you have the mindset of I'm going to chase this acute goal at any cost, you're going to end up getting hurt. And now when you get hurt, it just began again, becomes this vicious cycle that, that becomes challenging for people. So I think, appreciating slow and steady wins the race uh, is going to actually take care of a lot of those health problems. Um, From a more, I think, tangible kind of um, application side of things, I think power training is something that Jim Mm -hmm. should start to consider doing a lot more. Um, There's a lot of really cool research coming from like the neurology side um, with how power training can actually influence um, a lot of different health things, especially like the psychological or neurological level. Uh, so I think throwing things in occasionally with your gen pop, and even though you might only do bodybuilding or you might only do um, uh, powerlifting type training where you only focus on either muscle size or muscle strength, but if you throw in power occasionally, I think it's going to benefit both sides of the hypertrophy and strength coin, but it also is going to have some long-term effects. I mean, I just think of like if you're 50, 60, 70, um, and as you get up in age, if you're going to like go and step down the stairs or the curb, and you fall, like now you can break a hip because you're a little bit older. Mm-hmm. So that strength training is going to play a role in, in the bone health and the tissue health, but also power training is going to play a role in your ability to kick that foot out and catch yourself. Um, so I think that those things come to mind for sure. Like power training, if you're looking to add something tangible to your training routines, and then again, like big picture thinking and not getting caught in the rut of like, let me lose 10 pounds by tomorrow. Because that one, you're not going to do that anyways, and you're probably going to get hurt chasing that goal. Yeah, no, I love that. And I've, I've used power training with my gen pop clients on occasion here and there just as a means to keep things fresh. And again, to keep those tissues receptive to transmitting and absorbing different forces. But for people who don't know the term power training, they probably just think that that's power lifting. And I think mm-hmm. that that's a great spot to kind of unravel that and open that up a little bit. So first, my question is, what is power as a physical expression? How is that different from strength? And mm-hmm. then, and then, what elements does power training incorporate that make it different than traditional strength training? And how do those carry over to traditional strength training? Yeah, for sure. Uh, 
Well, the first side is like, uh, it's funny, power lifting and power training are totally different things, but yet somehow, I don't even know how powerlifting, someone would have to give me that historical framework on why powerlifting became powerlifting. Um, it should just be called force lifting. Like, um, so the biggest difference, obviously, is power just has a time component. Um, we start to consider how much force can we produce in, in a given amount of time, which is really uh, limited time in general, right? We want to decrease the time to produce that force, which is why velocity becomes part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, because the faster you can produce something, the shorter amount of time it would take. Uh, so I always just think of like typically triple extension or letting or, or like ballistic movement. So whether that's jumping or throwing things like a med ball um, or just moving something quick, which would be more of a triple extension type thing. Um, or last but not least, just an extreme intent on the rate of force production. So how fast you do produce force. So maybe you're using the same weight and maybe you're deadlifting. But rather than picking up, let's say it's 50%, rather than picking it up for sets of, uh, rather than doing a set of 10 at 50%, maybe you just do a set of three or four or five and you just do it as fast as you can with still good technique, obviously. Um, But now we're starting to bring in those velocity elements, which again are just proxies for constraining time because the faster you do something, the less time it's going to take to do it. Uh, And then the second part, I, I forget the second part of that question. Yeah, no, just the carryover. You did a really good job of kind of laying the foundation because it's what people are probably now grasping. It's like, okay, a, a one RM squat, that's more strength, but a max effort jump, that might be more power. A, mm-hmm. med, a med ball chest pass or throw is essentially the same thing as a bench press from a movement and a muscle standpoint, but one is more speed based, the other one is more strength based. So mm-hmm. they've got that, but now how does. How does the variability between those two things, particularly that variability on that speed and power side, how does that carry over to strength goals and, you know, force acceptance, transmission, all that stuff for people who are just like, yeah, I just want to lift. What, you know, why should I do this stuff? How does this make me Got better? It. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think that the, the quick and simple answer is it's going to just improve rate of force development. And the faster you can produce force, uh, ultimately the faster you can probably accelerate something early on, which is why we get into like this accelerative strength type discussion. But, um, so doing power training ultimately is going to allow you to produce force faster. Mm-hmm. When you start to think about different things, I mean, if your ultimate goal is just strength and you think about like your sticking point, mm-hmm. what point you might be able to get past your sticking point. And for those who might not know what a sticking point is, it's just wherever you get caught in your lift and you can no longer push through. So what typically we think of, um, you know, your, your big three, which would be your bench or spot, your deadlift, the sticking points for each of those are usually at the lowest points. So on the bench press, you get, you get hit or you get stuck somewhere close to your chest, usually a little bit off your chest, right? We've all been there where you're pushing as hard as you can. And then you get to this like almost midpoint, you can't push no more. And then, and then your spotter says, it's all you, it's all you, but really it's all them. And they're lifting the damn thing for you. Um, but doing power training is going to help you actually improve your rate of force development which might allow you to create enough momentum through those sticking points to ultimately make you stronger already. So that would be like the quick and easy answer. And then obviously when you're doing power training, you're going to recruit higher motor threshold units to actually produce more force. Those are the the strongest motor units that we have. Um, And so by stimulating those and making those grow and training those and rate coding and all the physiology behind those and the mechanisms to create uh, force, all that's going to transfer over and make you stronger anyways. Um, and like, I don't know, again, if I use that deadlift example of 50% for four reps, 
if you take 50% and you do a set of 10 right now, for some people that's fairly challenging, right? Probably RP of like a six or a seven, not much. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do a set of four and you do it as fast as you can and the intent is there, well, what's ultimately going to happen in that RPE and that exertion level, it's going to decrease over time. So because you're used to moving 50% very, very fast, when you go back to do that set of 10, it's going to feel super easy because you've already been doing it very fast. Yeah. Limitations and crossover there, but I think in general that that's going to hold up pretty well for people. Yeah, and I think it's a great way to work towards those potentially long-term strength and physique goals while keeping your volume and intensity lower by doing these. Well, your intensity is still quite high, but your volume doesn't need to be nearly as high when you're doing power training. So I think there's a lot, a lot of carry over there. And I think that was a super good explanation. And then kind of to just circle the wagons, man, because we've talked about a lot of things and, and your mindset and the way you approach it has been really present through all of them. Just a kind of a very thoughtful person, somebody who's very engaged with all of the things that you're working on. And you told a story at Bass last year that I absolutely loved. And I told you I was going to make you tell this story. But it's the story of the crabs. And this, I, I would like this to be the last thing we touch on because if, if I've learned a ton of things at both of these seminars. But this has been something that I have literally, it stuck with me every day and it, it pops into my head all the time. But could you tell me the story of the crabs in the bucket? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and shout out to Lululemon because I did an event with them a few years ago. And somebody brought this analogy into like, it was a bigger, um, bigger kind of thing that we were working on as a team. Um, but, and this was like a sub part of it, but that, but the same way it resonated with you, it resonated with me so much that I knew that I had to bring it as like the main point to introduce our symposium. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the crabs in a bucket story is, um, it's not very long. It's actually very short. And it's as simple as if you put a whole bunch of crabs in a bucket, you'll never need to put a top on that bucket because the crabs won't be able to get out because as soon as one crab gets close to the top and he's ready to escape, there's going to be another crab that's going to pull him down. And at, at any given time, if one crab is close to where two crabs or three are close to getting out, there's always crabs that are going to pull them back down. And so, uh, you know, you don't need to put a ceiling on them because there's no way for them to progress anywhere because all of their peers or all of their friends or family or people around them in their circle, or in this case, in their bucket are going to actually hold them back for you. Uh, And so I think, you know, we try to tie that into essentially in our industry. uh, But I think it's in any industry, Um, you know, we get so caught up in being competitive and, and egos take a, take a, a toll on everybody, of course, and everybody wants to be the best version of themselves. But oftentimes the best version of themselves has to come at the expense of someone else for some reason. But we try to drive home is like, we can all become the best version of ourselves and we can do that together and not be crabs in a bucket. Don't pull people back. When you see somebody that's, you know, ready to escape or go to the next level, like help them, promote them. So I think, you know, we tied that into our tagline for the event, which was um, better together. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think to me that, that, you know, that, that the crab analogies always reminds me, how can we become better together versus how can I become better at the expense of someone else? Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I've said this all the time. There's enough space at the table in this industry for all of us to be successful in whatever capacity we want. And I think that that only gets expedited by helping each other out. When we hold each other back, we don't form the relationships we could if we spent that same energy just helping each other out. And that's something I've always noticed about you. You're very, very 
energized around getting better and improving. And I think that showed today, man. And I really appreciated the conversation. So for anybody who's like, dude, I love this guy's energy. I love what he has to talk about. Where can they find you and keep up with you? Yeah. Uh, Instagram, you know, social media is the easiest way. Instagram is, uh, uh, doctor.ramsey.nigem. And then my Twitter, I think is just Dr. Ramsey. Nigem. I'm not on Twitter as much. I'm mainly on Instagram. Um, so those are probably the two main places that, that people can find me. I don't have a website or anything yet, but maybe that's coming. Yeah. Well, you're, you're allowed to be busy. You're working with, again, the best athletes in the world at the best collegiate basketball program. So if you don't have time to make a website, I'm sure that we, I'm sure that we all understand why. Again, Rand, thanks so much for coming on. Love the insights that you shared. We'll be sure to have you on again soon. And guys, remember, toss him a follow on Instagram and Twitter. Tons of great videos and content on the IG all the time. And again, we talked a lot about positivity, mindset, power training, and incorporating those things into your life. And they're all there for you right there on social. So give him a follow. And thanks again, Ram, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, being able to talk some shop with you here. Anytime. So guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Ramsey Nijem. Again, remember the director of sports performance for the University of Kansas men's basketball program. The guy has a ton of amazing things to share. Be sure to follow him on Dr dot dr dot ramsey dot nigem on instagram he shares a ton of amazing content as well as some fantastic instagram stories that he calls coffee with coach where he goes over a ton of different things in the sports performance space from x fizz to anatomy to biomechanics it's awesome dr ram is awesome thanks so much for coming on if you enjoyed it do feel free to share the podcast to your Instagram story. Take a screenshot, tag me, tag Dr. Ram. We both appreciate it. Let's get this out here and help people live better, healthier, more athletic lives. Mm-hmm.